When the world is ruled by violence and the soul of mankind fades, the children's path shall be darkened by the shadows of the neon maniacs. Episode 10, After the Maniacs. A year after the release of Neon Maniacs, Joe Mangine was attached to direct an adaptation of John Russo's Voodoo Dawn for Stephen Mackler. But Joe would be replaced by another cinematographer turned director, Stephen Fearberg, who was hot off DPing A Nightmare on Elm Street 4, The Dream Master. Neon Maniacs would be Joe Mangine's last movie as a director. Five years after, he'd return as a cinematographer in 1991 with Alligator 2, The Mutation. And soon after that, in the same year, he began his stint as the DP for 50 episodes of the Swamp Thing TV series. According to IMDb, he would have a few more DP credits with Spring Fling in 1995 and a TV series called Fudge in 1995. Joe Mangine's last credit is for a documentary titled Ralph Bunchy, an American Odyssey in 2001, which would be his last credit. Joe Mangine passed away at the age of 73 on November 2nd, 2006. I'm Joel Stephen, also known as Joel Stephen Hammond, and I played Slasher. I mean, the fact it took two and a half years after we shot it to come out, I was expecting at any time, and it just never came out. And then when it came out, it didn't come out. I mean, it, did it go straight to video? Did it hit a theater? I don't remember hitting a theater. Neon Maniacs finished production in March 1985, but it didn't hit theaters until a year and a half later on November 14th, 1986. It wasn't a wide release. It didn't play across the country at once. It did somewhat of a regional tour, first premiering in New York, opening the same day as Chopping Mall. According to Variety, it debuted in 13th place, earning $230,000 across 40 screens in New York. It was New York's second highest per screen gross for its opening week, just under Soul Man, which was number one. However, by November 25th, New York box office reported that Neon Maniacs had quickly faded from the spotlight. In January 1987, Neon Maniacs begins its US tour, starting in Miami. The film then moved through Ohio, Texas, North Carolina, and by May 22nd, it reached Los Angeles. It didn't play in any first-run theaters. Its opening week, it played at a drive-in theater as the second movie in a double feature with Stuart Gordon's Dolls. Without a major ad campaign, it concluded its summer run in Pittsburgh before ending its circuit back in Texas in September. Jim Branscombe, Cinematic Boy. 
always the thing I always look at at Neon Maniacs is like Hellraiser as kind of a comparison piece. Hellraiser came out on a um, New World, the post Corman New World pictures, and like you know there are some similarities between Neon Maniacs or the Neon Maniacs and Cenobites. Obviously, different you know origins or whatever, but like that's the other thing I don't understand. It's like you have a collective of like really cool monsters in one area and then another in another franchise have it and it's just like i guess it was just the marketing and like the distribution of it the vhs was then released a month later on october 4th a few weeks later on october 25th it had its premiere on hbo it plays at 1 a.m then on october 30th it plays at 2 30 a.m November 1st, 3.40 a.m. November 2nd, 1.30 a.m. When you see these time slots, you can easily see why people probably never even heard of Neon Maniacs or seen this film. Its release was stealth, and it never really played prime time. My name is Patrick Bromley. I wrote the article Neon Maniacs, an underrated gem that deserved so many sequels on bloodydisgusting.com. Neon Maniacs, it's certainly a low-budget movie, but they're able to realize all these crazy ideas that they have. While there are, you know, franchises are a going concern in the 1980s, you have movies like Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th. 13th and Halloween and you know there's a lot of like just offbeat one-off horror movies and Neon Maniacs sort of fits into that category the fact that it didn't get a sequel makes it much more singular uh, because it is this sort of weird little gem in a decade that has a lot of weird little gems that you have to seek to find out I also think the ending in a little bit of ways was setting it up for a sequel. But again, because I don't know much of like, you know, where they were looking at, because it I, obviously if it gets shut down, restart, they're not thinking of a sequel right away. They're just thinking about finishing the movie kind of thing. So I, I just, I don't know how intentional it is, but it felt like, like this could easily have been a franchise. I'm Chris Arnold. I was one of the partners of Cimarron Productions, which was the company that came in to uh, put the Neon Maniacs together after the initial production had fallen apart. I <laughs> I think I do remember the the idea that we would tip, you know, that we do that we would put a clue at the end that there might be a sequel. But I think we all thought that was a joke because. <laughs> because it, at that point we were so kind of like glad to be over with the thing we we didn't think anybody would ever want a sequel my name is gary gerani i'm a uh, a writer of fiction and nonfiction, and i've done films like Pumpkinhead. mark and i were talking about a sequel we he had come up with something which he called uh, neon maniacs bridge of souls got the bridge angle in there too and I remember we're talking about going into that place uh, within the bridge and there are, there are cops, there's whatever, there's a flying creature that's something that a cop shoots or what. It was like, like crazy stuff. And that would have explored, I suppose, 
a little bit more about the extra dimensional aspects of what they are. I don't necessarily, I'll give you another perfect example. The birds, the Hitchcock movie. Yeah, we all know it's about nature turning amok and what we've done and um, getting the birds getting even and all this stuff, our sins. But what it's really about, the birds are the id monsters of Tippi Hedren and um, uh, the woman who is the mother figure. And Tippi Hedren desperately is out of control and needs a mother figure. Whereas uh, was it Jessica Tandy as the mother needs a daughter figure. So uh, the birds in France, birds are, are known as a metaphor for fluttery out of control emotions. Hitchcock used that, but buried it because you're not supposed, because it seems goofy if you really, but that's why you have those characters in the birds. And that's why at the end, when the mother and daughter figure look at each other and find each other, the bird attacks stop and they're allowed to escape. They're given a second chance. Birds may always come back. Our inner negatives may destroy us again, but we're given. So that's what that movie was about. And that's what Mia Maniacs was about as well. Okay, coming from the inner person. Well, you don't want a sequel to The Birds, which explains what caused the birds to, to do this because it was a metaphor that had to be buried. Same thing with the Neon Maniac. So if you actually did a sequel that started to get into, it would lose the power of what was there. Now granted, the way the movie was made, it didn't really matter, you know, so you might as well just keep going in the comic booky direction. After The Maniacs, in 1987, Mark Patrick Carducci would go on to write an episode of Tales from the Dark Side, titled, The Spirit Photographer. Man lives in the sunlit world of what he believes to be reality. But there is, unseen by most, an underworld a place that is just as real, but not as brightly lit. A dark side. And in March 1987, his screenplay he wrote with Gary Durrani, Pumpkinhead, would go into production. He's gotta run his course. Now the spell has been cast. The terror is loose. The horror is here. Pumpkinhead. Uh, Pumpkinhead began life with two separate projects we were doing, Hell Mountain and The Seven Gargoyles of Satan. Oh my God, okay, we were young. And, and The Demon of Revenge, one of the gargoyles was revenge, and that eventually became Pumpkinhead. He was never named, but we, we didn't, that wasn't our name. Pumpkinhead was a, uh, a poem written by Ed Justin that these producers, these local producers had gotten the rights to and they, they thought it was a good name for a horror picture. So when they got, when, when they, they knew Mark actually, he's particularly the, the uh, producer of Pumpkinhead was the, had been the editor of Millimeter Magazine, which is a film magazine that produced in Manhattan. And Mark had written an article, I think about Ray Harryhausen, interestingly enough, for Millimeter. And uh, so, Billy Blake, the producer, knew that Mark was, so he approached him. And then Mark came to me and said, why don't we dust off 
our old demon of revenge scenario. I said, you know, here's an opportunity to take that idea. We'll just call him Pumpkinhead. We'll just say he comes from a pumpkin patch or, you know, whatever. Uh, and that's how that started. Although that, that evolved in a weird way too, because at first we're dealing with the people and they're saying, if we're going to call it Pumpkinhead, it really should be a pumpkin on a human body, a jack-o'-lantern monster. So uh, we put aside our Lovecraftian demon of revenge, and we began developing our first version of, the, of that script with this jack-o'-lantern head. On the, and the idea was when, when Ed Harley goes to the witch, you know, people, farmers, you know, they make use of everything they have that they have to, and things are put together to create other things. So the witch says, go to the cemetery, dig up a corpse. Okay, cut the head off and bring me the headless corpse. Meanwhile, as he's doing that, still spooky in the cemetery and all that, but we did away with our Lovecraftian angle, at least in terms of a reptilian demon. Meanwhile, she's carving a, a, a face into a pumpkin. And when he brings the corpse over, she puts the head of the pumpkin, and that's the thing that she reanimates. Okay. Now, of course, there was tremendous pressure. If you're calling the thing pumpkin head, most people are very literal, and that's kind of what they want, right? So that's kind of what we were doing for a while. Well, I'm happy you brought up the pumpkin head thing because I have a promo ad that I love, and it's, I think it was when they first announced pumpkin head, and it is a pumpkin with eyes looking over the dirt bikes. And yeah, I, that was, uh, that was, and we were, we were, uh, uh, because we had been convinced that was probably the smart way to go. I mean, logically, even now, some people would, will say they've never heard of pumpkin head. How come it's not a pumpkin head? You know, it's like, well, okay. But yeah, I remember that ad. It was the big head. Uh, I think you see the motorcycle kids on the bottom. I think Armand uh, Mastriani was involved in it at that point. I think he's even listed as the director. Well, so I was the director of He Knows You're Alone. Yeah, yeah. He was a cool guy. It's to Armand's credit, but he also was saying, even though it's called Pumpkinhead, maybe we can create something different, which is, of course, you know, originally what, what we had. But then Stan Winston got involved. And once Stan Winston, you're going to have the greatest creature creator, arguably, him and, and Rick Baker, a couple other guys, uh, you're not going to have him put a, a, a pumpkin on a human body. You're going to have him create something fantastic, right? You got Stan Winston coming in with all those James Cameron people right at the height of Aliens. I mean, Stan Winston had just shot Second Unit for Aliens. Our, our film was the next thing he did. You know, it, it, it's like, that's why they kind of figured he's never directed a film before, but he did shoot Second Unit. He will give us a state-of-the-art creature, and he brings with him all the James Cameron essence and people and flavors and so the photography on the film, the editing on the film, all of a sudden what could have been the Charles Band forgettable rubber monster movie wound up being something exceptional. So it, it works both ways. You gotta just be lucky. You know? Hello, I'm Dennis Fisher. I worked for Thingoria. Well, and certainly Stan Winston is one of the top guys in the, uh, the creative makeup field. So Pumpkinhead, as a definitely more interesting look in the, in the monster and so on, and ended up spinning off into a whole series of subsequent films, um, most of which don't really come that close to how good the original was.
it was popular enough that they, you know, like, well, let's make some more of these because they're not that expensive to make. Uh, again, mostly shot outside, so you don't build a lot of elaborate sets. And, uh, you know, a monster that becomes a draw. And so you put some people who are threatened and you at least can have a, a decent movie. Some of them are more creatively put together than others, obviously. New World was impressed with the Pumpkinhead screenplay. They offered Carducci and Gary Gerani the adaptation of John Skip and Craig Spector's vampire story, The Light at the End. But after a new head of production comes into New World, seeing the numbers of a horror comedy called Vamp, The Light at the End was put in turnaround. Also around this time, Carducci optioned the screenplay for Demon Knight. After Todd Holland leaves the project to direct Whoopi Goldberg and Fatal Beauty, Carducci would hold on to the rights until they ran out in 1991. Carducci was also attached to possibly write Child's Play 2. According to Fright Factor, Carducci says, I wrote a screenplay for Child's Play 2 simultaneously with Don Mancini, co-writer of Child's Play. The producers and United Artists who owned the film at the time wanted a second draft in development, basically as insurance. In case Don's draft didn't work out, I was given that insurance draft to write. But Carducci did elaborate on his concept for a Child's Play sequel. The action takes place in an old Gothic boarding school run by nuns. Little Andy is put there after he's taken away from his mother, who's had a nervous breakdown and has been put in an institution. The time covers Easter break, and the school is fairly unpopulated. Only about 12 kids whose families can't or won't take them home for the holiday are there, plus a skeleton staff. Then Chucky is resurrected and finds his way up there. UA would eventually choose Mancini's script. Then in 1990, Carducci's next project comes out, Buried Alive. Who knows who will be the next person to be buried alive? Tim Matheson and Jennifer Jason Lee star with Hoyt Axton and William Atherton in Buried Alive. Coming on video cassette March 21st. Brian Sauer, Pure Cinema Podcast. But I do think it's fascinating that you brought up that this guy wrote Buried Alive. I love Buried Alive. I, I would say I love that the two films have that that connection of the writer because Buried Alive to me is it's like it's sort of it's not quite as I don't want to say groundbreaking in terms of Neon Maniacs, but like, you know, just breaking the mold a little bit because Baird Alive feels like, you know, that sort of tale from the crypt, EC comics, noir, whatever it is, but it does some really cool unexpected things. So I feel like this writer had an awareness 
of genre, had an awareness of genre tropes and was able to put a certain spin on them that I really dig. Cause I really think buried alive. That's like Darabont's first directorial feature length thing. And it's a really strong effort from him too. So you got a really interesting script, a really great cast. I love Matheson. Atherton is insanely good. And you know, Jennifer Jason Lee is good. So it's just really well put together. And I, I give the credit, the credit to the script even more now having seen neon maniacs and what it's doing and how buried alive has not quite the same things, but like I said, some unexpected turns, especially towards the end, there's points of, and I don't know if it's deliberate or not, but points of this writer saying a normal movie of this kind ends here or begins this way. I'm going to do it a little different. And I'd love to just give him the credit of thinking that way and doing something a little off the beaten path and thus making an impression. In 1993, Mark Patrick Carducci directs a documentary about Ed Wood titled Flying Saucers Over Hollywood. I'm standing under the marquee of the landmark Vista Theater in Hollywood. It was on this block that D.W. Griffith filmed Intolerance. And it was just around the corner here, at the only place in Los Angeles where Hollywood and Sunset Boulevards intersect, that a young would-be filmmaker named Edward D. Wood Jr. began renting an office apartment. Now, when Ed lived and worked here, he had yet to write or direct any of the films for which he would eventually earn his bizarre and extraordinary reputation. And he was almost a decade away from creating his magnum opus. The film which will always be associated with his name, and the one that we're here to document and to celebrate. Plan 9 from Outer Space. Well, my name is Jim Ruland. I'm a writer in San Diego, and my connection to Neon Maniacs is personal. My cousin, Mark Patrick Carducci, wrote the film. I remember when Flying Saucers Over Hollywood came out, uh, I watched it with a friend, and he said, you know, it's almost like he treated Plan 9 from Outer Space as if it was Citizen Kane. And I don't think he meant that as a compliment, but I think it absolutely is. I think it's, it's a real labor of love to hold something up, uh, especially many, many years after it's fallen out of favor and say, hey, look at this. This is something special. This is something unique. Um, maybe there's more to it than just something to point at and laugh at. Yeah, I think it's really cool you made a documentary about Ed Wood a few years before the Tim Burton movie came out. It's cool he shined a spotlight on Ed Wood before that movie. Yeah, my cousin really loved those movies. And he was a film obsessive and he tracked down all of the sound stages where Plan 9 was filmed. He tracked down all the actors and the people who worked on it, a lot like what you're doing with his film, which is really gratifying. I'm Armando Munoz, a former friend of Neon Maniacs writer, Mark Patrick Carducci. I do have my tape recorder here. Yeah, here's just a little snippet of him talking about, uh, about UA who released uh, Child's Play and Pumpkinhead back to back. And we were kind of talking about the problems they were having with wide distribution and just the way they were kind of mishandling their horror properties at the time because right after child's play was a big success they dropped it 
as a property and Universal scooped it up and ran with it. And so we were kind of talking about that in this uh, little clip. I mean, I think UA has an attitude about horror films, similar to most studios, which, you know, that they're commercial sometimes, not that they're to be ever taken seriously, unfortunately, or, uh, um, you know, even when they're high budget, you know, they're still, you know, considered to be a little disreputable, unfortunately, you know, second rate movies, movies for, you know, people who are juvenile. I mean, there's just, it's very tough to, uh, to get them to respect the genre because they don't, you know, they, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, I don't know, I don't know what it is, it's not hip. They, they get embarrassed when an executive has to go home and see his family or his wife or his husband, her husband, if she's a woman or, and someone says, what did you green light last week? And they say, well, it's this movie about a, it's called Pumpkinhead. Oh shit, Jesus, what is that? You know, give me a break. Um, there's an embarrassment factor. Uh, that, that, you know, no matter how much money horror films make, uh, a lot of studio executives just sort of uh, uh, can't, can't relate to them, unfortunately. Uh, Mark, as you know, uh, took his own life, and um, I'm godfather to his daughter, uh, who is now a young lady in her 20s, or a wonderful, accomplished young lady, I'm glad, uh, I mean, you know, there's horror movies and then there's real horror, you know, of what happens to us. And uh, we weren't getting work. Um, it was getting very hard. More and more people were coming in in spite of our good work. And I, you know, used my connections at Tops. I optioned Mars Attacks in the late 80s. And Mark and I wrote a script uh, that was a serious script. And it was... Nothing like Independence Day or the Mars Attacks movie. It was a real human story about a family and through all walks of life, we follow different members as this war breaks out. So we have our military, young, young man in the military, his story with that. We have Panic in the Year Zero with another family trying to get home on the road. So we managed to, through one family, tell this story and we went everywhere. And Pumpkinhead was very well liked. So we clearly were guys who knew how to do creature features of this sort. Uh, but they all told us, we don't think War of the Worlds is coming back. And we kept saying, it's Star Wars on Earth. Hasn't been done yet, right? Only V had been playing a little bit with that on television. And we said, oh, God, this is going to steal our thunder. We're going to be the first one. Excuse me, a few years later, we had Independence Day and Mars Attacks the same year. And alien invasions are dropping from the ceiling. We were there first. We were told, we don't believe in War of the Worlds, not coming back, sorry. So that's the film biz. Even with Pumpkinhead, and even with the official rights to Mars, and even with the script, which was good, and with a great idea, no. And that, among other things, led to Mark eventually getting so depressed. Um, he had a deal going with three major filmmakers to produce a, um, a TV series based on Weird Tales. I was going to be writing Pigeons from Hell. It was great. We had all this great, there's this great stuff done, right? And uh, uh, was it Tim Burton, uh, um, Francis Ford Coppola, and, and another major, oh, Oliver Stone. There were, there, there were three producers. He even has contracts with them. The same way Tales from the Crypt had Zemeckis and Spielberg. Well, Weird Tales is going to have it. It was the same 
model to do it that way, right? So he's on top of the world. Going, wow, well, takes out an article in the Hollywood Reporter, all very excited. And then those guys renege. Even with written contracts, it means nothing. They just decided they weren't interested. And, and you can't Ford, you can't sue Francis Ford Coppola. You, you, you can't do this. Uh, and then Mark feels like a complete fool. I was on top of the world. I had my new show with the greatest filmmakers in Hollywood behind me. I went from that to the guy down the block mowing the lawn laughing at me. Well, thank you. I mean, this kind of stuff keeps working on you and, and eventually he just lost it. I mean, there's obviously other things going on. Uh, someone has deeper problems and I know what those problems were. They stem back to his mom and all other kinds of things I want to get into. So my cousin had a real passion for horror movies and the industry. And he showed a lot of respect for the people who came before him. And as a result, he had a lot of friends and, and people respected him uh, because of that. He wasn't a uh, someone who was just trying to get ahead in the industry. He was someone who legitimately loved monster movies and horror movies. And you know, people like Clive Barker thought highly of him. Uh, he was friends with Forey Ackerman. But these were people that Mark looked up to and respected, and and they respected him back. I have a love for Mark, based on what a monumental, you know, an influential friend and mentor he was for me. Like I had something that was really special, that I can analyze and see even more clearly now, especially going back into the tape and and hearing things from my life that I didn't remember that Mark is telling me. But, you know, I knew he passed, but never really approached it. And I think that was my own distance. Like I, I had a hard time dealing with it myself, even though at that point I wasn't making my regular trips to LA anymore, which is a shame because it meant that toward the end of his, you know, his last few years, yeah, I, I guess I didn't, I, I don't know much and I'm sure it'll be a little difficult to hear, but I think I'm more able to confront it now because I can more greatly, you know, appreciate Mark and what I can do to carry on his legacy. You know, even after all this time, I think, you know, it's just the interest is gonna keep growing on, on you know, his films. I think that um, that there's also a lot of love out there for this movie, and there's a lot of people who understand what an audacious and scrappy and uh, somewhat original idea it was, and uh, and all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into making it are, are very valid. And they brought a product out of the abyss that was very much worth seeing, and and uh, very much worth uh, having a great time with too. You know, in a slightly better universe, the Neon Maniacs would have been hosting one hour rock music video blocks on MTV like Freddy Krueger did in 1988 and 89. 
I think part of my fascination and fondness for Neon Maniac stems from the fact that it was Mark's first movie. And so there was a lot of, you know, sweat and creativity and anxiety and worry and hope. I mean, it was his dream to make a monster movie and it took a very long time for it to come together, but it did. He sold it and then it took an even longer time to get made with a long interruption in the middle, but it got made. And being a writer and understanding like a certain sentimental attachment you have to your first work because you don't know anything about anything or how the business works. You just have an idea and a story that you want to share. And it takes a lot of determination to see it through to the end. And he did it. That wraps up our final episode of In the Shadows of the Neon Maniacs. Thank you so much for listening. I'd also like to thank Shane McKinney for our opening and closing theme music. The main theme on today's show is from Tone Box. The track is called Cool Down. You can find a link to it in our show notes. This show is written, produced, and edited by your host, Steven Scarlatta. I'd also like to thank Sean Farina for setting up and recording the interview with Chris Arnold. And I'd also like to thank everybody that took time out of their schedule to talk to me. There's too many to mention. I wish I could mention you all. And I also like to thank everybody that supported the project, everyone that's reached out to me to tell me they dug it, everyone that's tweeted about it and left us positive reviews. Thank you so much. And if you haven't, please, if you can, rate and review. So it will also determine if I do another one of these deep dives. And don't forget to stay out of the shadows.